Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open your Bibles to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, the 11th Psalm. We continue our series through the Psalter. We're going to probably Psalm 15, maybe is where we'll stop. Yeah, Psalm 15, and then we're going to go back to the New Testament. So a few more Psalms here before we head back to the New Testament. Psalm 11. Hear the word of God from Psalm 11. For the choir director of David, I have taken refuge in Yahweh. How can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? For look, the wicked string bows. They put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. Yahweh the Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. We pray, Lord, that we would understand the common counsel of loved ones. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your holiness, to see your righteousness, to see your glory, to see your activity and your presence in our lives. Encourage us, Father. Draw us near to you. Change our thoughts. Grant us the gift of repentance and faith. For those who are not Christian, we pray that you would grant them initial repentance and initial faith for initial salvation. And for those of us who have already been converted, we pray that you'd give us continual repentance, a fresh dose of repentance and faith this morning by your Spirit's power. Show us Jesus, we pray. Help us, help me to preach, help us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What have you got to lose? That's a good question to ask yourself, and people ask that often depending on what, what, what challenge they're facing. What do you have to lose? If you, if you pursue this option, what's the worst case scenario? Well, what do you have to lose in your life right now? What is threatened or endangered in your life? If you love or value anything, then you have an answer to that question. There are certain things you, you don't want to lose. You want a safe space. You want to have security and safety. In the last few years, the idea of safe space on university campuses has been practiced and debated. Have you heard about that? Safe spaces on university campuses? The idea is to have a space on campus where a person, a student, is safe from being silenced or bullied by those who have more power, where someone could be insulated from ridicule or pain. In safe spaces, there is no shaming because a student is protected, both ideologically and emotionally, from anything that disrupts their good feelings. 
Now, I'm not going to take the rest of our time to debate, debate safe spaces, but I would say that um, there's a place that where people need to be heard, but if you only have safe spaces where people cannot engage each other and disagree and exchange ideas, then you're not going to, uh, especially in a university campus, you're not going to raise mature adults who can have the disagreement and even a, a hurtful conversation, even if a necessary truthful conversation. So it's good to, to seek safety, but to have safe spaces on campus where you can't um, ever have anyone disagree with you, that might be safe on campus. But once you go into the real world and you're not on campus where there's a safe space, you're going to have to engage people who won't recognize your quote unquote safe space. And so on the whole, it's a bad idea, though there's a place for listening to each other for sure and giving people space to communicate. And the reason why it won't work in real life is because there are real dangers everywhere. There are dangers all around us. And the things we love, the things we want to hold on to, the things we value can be lost. And that's scary, whether it's our emotional uh, health, our mental health, whether it's friends, family, relationships, whether it's a position we have, a certain possession we own. The fact that it can be lost is scary. And so we are scared of losing what we love. And if we're not, if we don't have any legitimate fear of losing it, then we don't really love it, right? The good news is, from this passage, we don't have to live in fear because God is our safe space. God is actually the only safe space. And so we want to think about that this morning, the fact that God is our safe space. So here's the main goal from Psalm 11. Rest safely in Christ so that you face your dangers confidently. Rest safely in Christ. Christ is our safe space. So rest safely in Christ so that you face your dangers confidently. We're going to look at Psalm 11. It's a short psalm, only seven verses. And so the way we want to think about resting safely in Christ, we're going to think about the danger. So we want to reasonably feel the danger. Secondly, in verses four through five, we want to thoughtfully test our thoughts. Thoughtfully test our thoughts. I have thoughtfully test our framework, but you don't know what that means until I explain it. And then thirdly, if we're going to rest safely in Christ, we want to pray for righteous judgment. We want to righteously pray for judgment, okay? So the main goal, rest safely in Christ so that you face your dangers confidently. If you didn't get those three, I'll just say them as we go through them, okay? So number one, reasonably feel the danger. Reasonably feel the danger. Verses one through three. Look at verse one. This is David talking. And David says, so David gives us first his kind of thesis statement. He says, I have taken refuge in the Lord, in Yahweh. So who's, God, who's David's refuge? The Lord, Yahweh, God, right? That's David's refuge. But then, you know, if you're a king like David is, or even when he wasn't a king and he was on the run from Saul, he had a lot of friends. He had a band of 400 men who were traveling with him, and he, he doubtlessly had advisors, right? If you're a leader, you need to have advisors to give counsel so that you're not just thinking your own thoughts and making your own decision. You need to get counsel and advice from others. And so... David has his refuge in the Lord, but he has guys who love him, men who are standing by his side, willing to die for him. And they give him advice from the rest of verse one all the, all the way to verse three. So listen to their advice. So here's the, they feel the danger. His advisors feel the danger and they're telling David, you need to feel this danger. So here's their, here's their counsel. They give their counsel first and then their reasons. Here's their, here's their advice. 
escape to the mountains like a bird. That's why David's saying, the Lord's my refuge. How can you tell me to go to escape to the mountains like a bird? You, you, they're saying, David, you need to escape to the mountains. Why does he need to escape to the mountains? Because the mountains in the Bible, in the Psalms, in the poetry, the mountains are the place of security. That's the unshakable place. You could burn down a city, you can burn down homes, you can wipe out an army, but you can't move a mountain. You can't have an army to destroy a mountain. Nowadays, with our modern technology and nuclear warfare, that's not quite exactly the same thing. But in that day, with bows and arrows and swords, what are you going to do against a mountain? A mountain is secure. So flee to the mountains. The advice is, is, David, you need to find your security in the mountains, an earthly refuge. Now, we don't find our security today in our mountains. I mean, in the mountains. Where do we find security? Where do, you, where do we look for security? We have this whole industry, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing necessarily, of insurance, don't we? There's all kinds of insurance. Life insurance, car insurance, health insurance, um, you know, renter's insurance, homeowner's insurance. And when the, the idea behind all it is insurance, that you can be sure that you're safe and that you're secure. That's like running to the mountains, so to speak, that there's these earthly structures we can set up to find our security and safety. Now, it doesn't only have to be those types of insurances. Your job can be your security, right? That can be your mountain. Or it can be your savings fund. Some of you have an emergency savings fund. As we are helping each other and discipling each other towards financial health, we talk a lot with other people in private conversations about having an emergency fund as a safety net. Some people find security in a particular relationship. I have my wife, I got my kids, or I have my best friend, or I have my church family, I have my accountability group, I got my neighbors, I got my extended family, my cousins. And so we, we look for security in these things. Flee to the mountains, flee to your family, flee to your church, flee to your job, flee to your savings fund. Find security because there's real danger out there. And notice here in verse 1, it says, escape to the mountains like a what? Like a bird. Now, birds are not known for staying and fighting, especially the small birds, right? They don't need to fight. All they can do is what? All they need to do is what? Just fly away, right? There's danger in the, in the situation. You don't need to fight as a little bird. You just fly to the mountains. And most people, they can't catch you because you're flying, right? And so that's what they're telling David. Here's a danger. Maybe there's a threat from outside. Maybe it's Absalom and his his army that's invading Jerusalem or King Saul who's chasing David previously. And the answer is flee to the mountains like a bird. Don't stay and fight, take flight, right? What's the real threat? So uh, look, there's a real threat named here in verse two. The threat, and here's why they give this counsel. For look, here's why you need to flee like a bird to the mountains and find this earthly security. Look, David, the wicked string bows. They put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. They got their guns loaded and cocked, ready to fire. Their bows are strung. The arrow is on the bow. They're hiding out in dark places you can't see, and they're shooting people down who are upright in heart. That's what's happening. So that's why if you flee to the mountains and you hide in the mountains, at least you'll be safe. The wicked have weapons that can harm you. The wicked have weapons that can kill you. Your loved ones can be taken from you. You can be killed yourself. Your physical health can fail. So can your mental health. 
Your reputation can be ruined. Your relational health can be ruined by being misrepresented, misunderstood, slandered, lied about. There are real threats in this world, right? They're not fake. It's not like if you're a Christian, all your problems go away and you just need to think positively. There are real dangers and threats in this world that can harm you. And the, the counselor's greatest fear, David's friend's greatest fear is in verse three. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What are the foundations? Maybe it's the moral order of the day, the moral foundations of the society. I mean, if Absalom is coming to kill David, the king, who's a righteous king, I mean, what kind of moral foundations are there? Or maybe it's societal order, because again, there's a revolt. There's like a civil war going on when David's son leads the whole nation of Israel to rebel against the king and his people. So it's like the foundations are, are destroyed. If, if the foundations are destroyed, what else can you do? What can the righteous do? So the greatest fear is the fear of helplessness, right? The fear of helplessness. I mean, when you do what's right, when you obey God, when you are righteously walking with your God, when you are justly walking with your God, and then you still get shot by the arrows, you still get the danger to your home and your life. What else can you do? You can't do anything else. So what should you do? Flee to the mountains. Find some earthly security that can really keep you safe because, dude, there's threats everywhere all around you. You have no hope of avoiding all threats and danger in your life. The foundations of life are even being destroyed. Now, if your foundation is your life, if your foundation is your physical health or your mental health or your emotional health, if your foundation is your family, if your foundation is your reputation, if your foundation is your finances, if your foundation is your church family, then guess what? You better run to the mountains and get real security and find peace of mind because those things will fail, won't they? They're not permanent. They will fail you. You put your security in any of these things you better run for the mountains like a bird. You might as well because your, your so-called security is not so secure. And so if you, so that's why the righteous seem helpless. The righteous are those who are righteous before God. They trust in God. They're counted righteous before God by faith alone. But that faith alone in Christ alone for new, new covenant Christians, for old covenant Christians, old, co- old covenant saints, it would have been them believing in Yahweh and the promises given to Abraham of blessing those who believe in Yahweh by faith and in the atonement through the sacrifice, they are counted as righteous by faith alone. But then that faith also helps them to walk in righteousness. That faith is not a dysfunctional dead faith because faith without works is dead. It's a live and living functional faith. And so the righteous, that's who the righteous are here. And the counselor says, okay, so what if God counts you righteous? So what if you walk in God's ways? At the end of the day, what can you do when these arrows are still being shot at you? You're still, your, your earthly securities, the things you love and value on this earth are still going to be taken away. If that is your foundation, then it will be destroyed. But if God is your foundation, can your foundation be destroyed? No. If the Lord is your foundation, your, your foundation is secure. But let's still go back to the critique here. But what good is what good is God? What good is God as your foundation if you're still losing your life or the good things he's given you in this life? That's what some people might say, right? I mean, I'm a Christian. What good is it? I'm still losing 
you know, uh, I just got a text during my sermon about a prominent pastor who I appreciate, and maybe I'll tell you more later, but who just got diagnosed with cancer. Faithful pastor, theologian, who's gospelizing and discipling over the years, just got cancer. What good is it? I'm righteous. I got health insurance. Take care of my body. I eat well. Eat a lot of flaxseed to keep, to keep the cancerous cells from multiplying. And yet, gets cancer. What good is it when your foundations are destroyed? What good is it to have God and walk with God? I mean, think about it. The righteous, when they helped David, when David was running from Saul, and they helped um, at Nob, the, the priests helped David. When Saul found out, you know what Saul did? He went over there and he questioned the priests. These are the only priests in the land. Saul got his army, and he was so paranoid that Saul, took sword, Saul commanded his army to kill the priests because they helped David. And the priests were righteous. The first soldier who was commanded to kill the priest said, I'm not going to do it. I can't kill. Like, even though he's looking at the king, he's like, I can't kill these priests just because you're mad. And so then Saul asked another guy to kill the priests. And the priests were righteous. What good is it to be righteous and have God when they just kill you anyways? I mean, Jesus warned us that we would follow him and we'd still get killed. What about Stephen being stoned? Didn't Stephen trust in God in Acts chapter 7? and eight, Acts chapter seven? He trusted in God. He gospelized. He refuted enemies. And then a mob rose up. And we, we know like just from the protest that some protests are peaceful. But when it gets unpeaceful, it can get, you can lose control really fast, right? In a, in, a, in a group of people. And so for Stephen, when he's there and a mob rises up and they decide to stone him and kill him right there on the spot, here is a man who's righteously walking with God. And does he survive? No. Those rocks are real. Those stones are real. They really hurt. They really kill. They really squeeze life out of the righteous. What good is it to be righteous when you're stoned unjustly and executed in front of everyone in Jerusalem? This is not a surprise for us. The beast in Revelation, he will use the world to kill the saints. Church member, if you're a Christian here, listen up. If you're a Christian, you can be slandered misrepresented, misunderstood, hated, maligned, fired, and attacked. That can really happen to you. That will happen to some of our church members. It happens to saints often. It's a real danger. But here's what I want to tell you if you're a Christian. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It's real. Becoming a Christian doesn't eliminate those dangers. As a church family, what does that mean for us? If we have real dangers that our 105 members are endangered by, what does that mean for us as a church family? That means that we need to walk with one another, support each other as much as we imperfectly can as a church family, to care for each other. If you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. If you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, thank you for being here in this room or online if you're watching, either live on Zoom or later if you're watching a recording. What is your biggest fear? What are you scared of losing? What are you most scared of losing? And then let me ask you this. What is your mountain of security? What is going to keep you from losing what you love most? The main goal of Psalm 11 is to rest safely in Christ so that you face your dangers confidently. And you must do that, number one, by reasonably feeling the real and present danger. You got to reasonably feel it. It's reasonable. It's real. Reasonably feel the danger. But secondly, you need to 
thoughtfully test the framework. You need to thoughtfully test the framework, verses 4 and 5. The framework of what? When you got counselors around you and you got people giving you advice, you got friends giving you advice, is all the advice you get good advice? Yes or no? No. Now, you get some good advice, but not all advice you get is good. So when you get advice, and when it sounds reasonable, it is reasonable that things are dangerous out there and that you will lose the things you love most. That's reasonable, right? When you get that advice, here's how you secure your life. What you need to do is thoughtfully test the framework of their advice. Not the advice itself. Is there real danger out there? Yes. But what are you assuming with that advice? I need to test your assumptions. Here's what I'm saying. The counselor friend here for David assumes some wrong things about God. The threat is real, but the picture and the framework is incomplete. You know when we say, uh, when people take the, the stand, they say, I promise to tell the truth. What's after that? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because if you tell the truth but not the whole truth, guess what? It's a lie, right? And, and you might not intentionally do it. Your friends, David's friends might not be intentionally giving them half of the truth, but when you only get half of the truth and you fill in the picture, the, the rest of the picture yourself with false things, you get a distorted picture, right? So is David, are there people trying to kill David? Yes. Are, there, are those arrows real? Yes. Are they really shooting the righteous from the dark and from the shadows where people are not seeing? Yes, those things are real, but that's not the whole picture. You got to test the framework that they're putting the picture in, okay? Be careful not merely to consider facts without considering the framework that shapes the use and direction of those facts. I don't want to get off on a tangent here about the, the, the debates of our day, but there's a lot of facts being thrown around, right, about different things about our societal situation, facts about, you know, different crimes, and, and um, all these statistics that are being thrown out, there, thrown out there. What I want to say is, brothers and sisters, don't assume that just the facts have the whole picture. There's a framework that's being assumed in the facts, and you've got to test that, or else you'll be led in the wrong direction. Now, you guys said earlier, and I agreed with you, our foundation cannot be destroyed if God is our foundation himself. But if our foundation is God's good gifts, if our mountain is God's good gifts, our mountain of safety is the church, or your friends, or your health, or your finances, then your foundation can be destroyed. It will eventually be destroyed. You can't find any true security in this world. There's no, there's no insurance plan for your foundation. There's no insurance plan for the things you value most. There's no insurance plan for yourself and for your treasures in the wor this world. There's only one insurance plan, and that's God. God is your only security, but he's only secure if God is your ultimate treasure. If God is not your ultimate treasure, then you will, by definition, you have to be insecure because your treasure is an idol and your idol cannot protect itself and you can't mount up enough idols to protect your idol. Does that make sense? This is why you can't, so if God is not your ultimate treasure, your, your, your security will be, sh will be shaken at the end. All other ground is sinking sand Besides Christ, all other ground is sinking sand. So why is this friendly counsel bad? What's wrong with the framework? What's the danger? If the danger is real, what's wrong with the framework? What's wrong with the framework is that they get God wrong. So here we learn three things about God in verses four and five, okay? God is holy, God is attentive, and God is invested. 
Verses four and five, look at it. God is holy, God is attentive, and God is invested. Look at verse four. Verse four says this, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh is in his holy temple. His name is Yahweh, and what does it mean to be Yahweh? The God who keeps his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who promised to bless cursed sinners through Abraham's great nation, through Abraham's holy offspring, through Jesus Christ. Who is God? Who is Yahweh? Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know that Yahweh your God is God. I quote this every week, right? The faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. That is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice here that God is where? In verse four, where is God? He's not in the mountain, where is he? In his what? In his holy temple, and it is holy. What does it mean to be holy? Can you guys give another word for holy? I heard it. Set apart. apart. What's another word for holy? Anyone else? You could say separate, unique. You could say special. God's temple is special. Holiness is, is um, specialness. So, so God is separate from all other beings. God is unique and distinct from all other beings. God is special in a way that no one else is special. But if you take those words for holy, it doesn't quite work, right? We know that God is holy, holy, holy. But it doesn't quite work if you say God is set apart, set apart, set apart. Or God is unique, unique, unique. Or God is separate, separate, separate. Or God is special, special, special. Holiness is holy because it refers to who? To God himself. There is none greater than God. There's no one more majestic than God, no one more beautiful than God, no one more true than God, no one more good or righteous than God. No one is even close. God is in a class all by himself. So that when we say the Holy One, there's only one person we are referring to. And who's that? God himself. God is the Holy One. There is only one that we can be referring to, God. All other things are holy, like a temple is holy, only because it's connected to who? God. So the only reason the temple is holy is because it's connected to God. And the only reason you're holy if you're a Christian is because you're connected to God. So God is in his holy temple. That's where he dwells. And where's this temple in verse four? In heaven, his throne is in heaven. And if God is on his throne, he's sitting on his throne in, in, in his holy temple in heaven. And as he sits on the throne, who sits on the throne? The king sits on the throne and the king reigns from his throne. And who sits on the bench, on the seat, the judgment seat? The judge. So God is the king and God is the judge and he sits on his throne, and his throne is in his holy temple, and his holy temple is in heaven, which is bigger than earth. Our God is in the heavens, the Bible says, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3. God is in his holy temple, and he rules. So should David be scared if his refuge is in the Lord? Should he be scared if God is in his holy temple? Yes or no? No, right? If God is on the throne, and he's bigger than the people with the arrows if he's bigger than the government, if he's bigger than society, if he's bigger than your threats, if he's bigger than cancer, if God is bigger than that, then you don't have to be scared of the things that are smaller than that, than him, right? So Yahweh is holy, and he's in his holy temple. Secondly, Yahweh is attentive. Look at verse four. Let's finish verse four to verse five. His eyes watch. He examines everyone. The Lord examines everyone. The righteous. So notice here that Yahweh the Lord is attentive. God might seem inactive. 
right? God might seem like he's not paying attention. When David is attacked, when the priests at Nob were killed, it could seem like, where's God? We talked about that last week, right, from Psalm 10. Lord, where are you? You seem so distant. Was it eight minutes and 45 seconds? I can't remember the exact seconds that the knee was on George Floyd's neck, as we talked about even last week, and society's been talking about. You can say, where's God at that, at that point, right? Where's God for those eight minutes and 45 seconds? God seems to be inactive. God seems to be asleep at the wheel. Now, I said he seems to be. And so the advice might be run to the mountains because God's sleeping. But this verse is saying, verse 4 says what? His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous. God is attentive. He might seem inactive, but God is attentive. His eyes watch. He examines everyone. That's not even just outside the church, even inside the church. God examines you. He examines me. He tests us. Revelation 2, 22 and 23 says this. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. This is Jesus talking to the church. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus tests your thoughts. Jesus tests your actions. Jesus tests your deeds. Jesus tests your emotions. Jesus tests your feelings. Jesus watches you. He watches every single one of our members. He watches every single person who, commit, who confesses to be a Christian. He watches everyone in society as the judge, and he will judge, and he will give according to everyone, according to everything they have done. He is perfectly righteous. Nothing escapes his perfect judgment and justice and righteousness. It says in verse 5, the Lord examines the righteous. The word here for examine gives the idea of the way that a silversmith examines the purity of his silver or a goldsmith um, examines the purity of his gold. You put the gold in fire and you refine it and you burn it until all the impurities come to the surface. You wipe those away and you get a purer and purer gold or a purer and purer silver. And then the, the examiner keeps examining and testing and checking the silver to see its purity. That's what God does with the righteous. He doesn't just look at you once in a while. He doesn't just look at you when you're in trouble or when you're praying. He's not just paying attention to you when you're paying attention to him. He's attentive all the time. He's examining all the time, very carefully and meticulously. The Lord examines everyone and he examines the righteous. He watches over the way of the righteous, the blessed man, according to Psalm 1-6. He sees our hearts and our minds and we cannot hide from him. He knows our true righteousness. He knows if we are in Christ and we have Christ's righteousness primarily counted for us and that's how you're justified. Not by your righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And he knows if, that, if you truly do believe in Jesus and it works out in your life in imperfect but progressive righteousness in your own life. So Yahweh is holy. Yahweh is attentive. Even when he lets people die in front of him, he still cares. He is not absent. He is not careless. He is taking notes in a sense. He is very attentive to every detail and he will judge righteously. So Yahweh is holy, Yahweh is attentive. And thirdly, verse 5, let's finish verse 5, look at verse 5. Yahweh is invested. So he examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Now the reason I said invested is it's not that God just examines the wicked and those who do violence. What does it say about what God does? He hates. There's an investment here, an emotional investment. 
Now, when I say emotional, I got to be careful here, at least for those of you who think about God um, and the impassibility of God. It's not that God can ever um, be affected by us ultimately. God is, um, God is God, and he stands above everything, and he knows everything. But God does have, in that sense, God does have feelings. God hates. There's a rage. There's an abhorrence. God hates, it says here, the wicked and those who love violence. So he examines the wicked and those who love violence, and when he examines them, he feels hatred. He hates them. Does God actually hate them? Does God actually hate people? Yes or no? How many of you say yes? Raise your hand. How many of you say no? Raise your hand. A few of you. How many of you don't know? Raise your hand. A few of you don't know. Well, I'm a pastor, and I'm a preacher, and all I can do is preach the Bible, so I just got to go back to what it says. What does it say? He hates the wicked and those who love violence. Now, I appreciate those who said, no, he doesn't, because there's something right in that saying no, because we could, see, we could read he hates the wicked here and think the wrong kind of hatred or the wrong amount of hatred or the wrong shape of the hatred here. But first, we've got to stick with what the Bible says, right? You always start with what the Bible says, and you just have to say yes. When the Bible says something, you just got to say, yes, Lord, that's, that's what you said. I've got to believe it, right? So it says here, he hates the wicked and those who love violence. So does he actually hate them? Well, that's what it says. How are we to understand? We love talking about the doctrine of the love of God. What about the doctrine of the hatred of God? If, you're, if, the, if you think this is the only place, you could go back to Psalm 5 in your Bible. Look at Psalm 5. It says it there too, right? Psalm 5.5, 5, the boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 106 verse 40 says this, the Lord, therefore the Lord's anger burned against his people. He abhorred his own inheritance. Abhorrence. You know when you abhor something, you hate it so bad, like you're so detested and disgusted by something? It's a feeling. God is abhorred by his own inheritance or he abhors his own inheritance. Psalm 139, 21, 22, David reflects the same sentiment. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. There's hatred here. So let's, how do we think about this? I don't have a lot of time. I'm not gonna spend the whole sermon to explain this, but let me explain this for a second because it's here in the passage, right? God's hatred and anger towards sin and sinners is a righteous hatred. It's a righteous response toward what attacks what God loves. When you love something, you hate the things that attack what you love. To love something means you have to hate the things that attack what you love. You can't love, if, 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 if you start attacking this thing, right? Like let's, let's just say, just for an example of, a, of an object, so here's a microphone. If you start attacking and you destroy this microphone and I don't care about it, then I have no response. I'm indifferent, right? I'm not gonna be mad because I don't love it. But if you attack one of my loved ones, attack one of the church members or attack a family member, attack my wife and you attack the person, I'm gonna hate that situation, right? Because I love, the, the necessary corresponding emotion is hate towards the things that attack what I love. And so God's hatred and anger towards sin is a righteous response towards the attack of what God loves and who God loves. So in a way, in the way that we hate cancer or the way that we hate the COVID-19 virus, or the way that we hate death, or the way that we hate sexual abuse, or the way that we hate the things that harm those we love, so God hates sin. But no one debates that, that God hates sin. But it also says 
Not that God hates sin, but also that God hates the sinner, the wicked. It's not talking about wickedness. It's talking about the wicked. And we have a hard time with this. And here's why we have a hard time with this. I think it's right to have a hard time with this. Because the emphasis of the Bible is not on the hatred of God. It's on the love of God. And that's right. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We love the love of God. We love that. And love is is what we're called to do as Christians. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The reason we have a hard time, though, with the hatred of God is because we think of love in a self-centered way. We think of love in a humanity-centered way. We think of God, God values humanity above himself, and so therefore we're going to value God above ourselves. But that's not true. God does not value humanity above himself. God values humanity for himself, and God will send his son to die for his people, humans, for himself, but God does not value humanity above God. We, you shall have no other gods before you, right? God also shall have no other gods before him. If God put you above him, then God would be an idolater, wouldn't he be? So we think of the love of God in a humanity-centered way, which is why we have a hard time thinking about God hating humans. Because we, put, we, think, we expect God to put humans above him. But God won't do that. Because God is God, not humans. Humans are made in his image to reflect God, but not to be put above God. And so God's hatred of sin and sinners is corresponding to God's love for his glory and his love for his glory in his people. And so God has a righteous, righteous hatred for sinners at the same time that God does have a love for those sinners as well. Because like Johnny said when he addressed those who are not Christian who might be listening right now, we were all once in your shoes, right? We were all once not Christian. We were all once not saved. And so even though God hated us, he also loved us, and he could do both at the same time. And as Christians, we are to do the same. Our emphasis is on love. Our emphasis is on people's salvation. We are not hopeless towards others. We are hopeful for them. So we lay down our lives to gospelize them. But at the same time, there is a place for holy, righteous hatred under the love and passion for God's glory. That might not make full sense with you. That's hard to apply in your lives. We need to be careful with that. That's why a lot of preachers don't preach on this. I read some commentaries. Some commentaries just even skipped over it and even talk about it. That's what I wish preachers could do, but I hope you expect from preachers here to actually deal with what's said in the word. All right, so God is in, the point here is that God is invested. When God sees a killer or injustice being done, God is not indifferent. It's not that God doesn't care. God hates the sin. And if they will not repent and trust in Christ and ultimately be saved, then in the end, at the end of the day, they will be under God's hatred and wrath forever. Okay, does that make sense? You guys following with that? God is not indifferent. So you don't need to run to mountains ultimately for your security. You don't need to run to insurance. You don't need to run to just changing the government, though that might be a good thing to do, or changing certain situations. That's good to do. It's good to, to change the church and make things better. But even in that, our security is not ultimately in the change on earth, right? Because if it is, it will fail. Our, our hope, our security, our safe space is in a God who is holy. He's in his holy temple. He's attentive, and he's invested in what's going on in this world. And so we don't need to take the advice of our friends who say, run to the mountains. Yahweh is the believer's one and only ultimate refuge. 
I have taken refuge in the Lord. That's Psalm 11. One. What does Psalm 121 verse 1 say? I lift my eyes up to the mountains. And then David asked this question, where does my help come from? Does it come from the mountains? No. My help comes from you, maker of heaven and earth. That's your security. That's your help. Yahweh is your only true safe space. The Lord Jesus is your only true safe space. Now, let me give you a story about this before we move on to our, our third and last point. In my devotions, I'm reading through 2 Kings, and I got to 2 Kings chapter 6 this week. And I've told you this story before, but it's a, it's a good one, and you need to keep it in mind, and it illustrates Psalm 11 verse really well. Elisha was a prophet who, who God gave supernatural. A lot of times God revealed to him things that other people didn't know. So the king of Aram was trying to send raiders to attack and rob from the nation of Israel. So anytime he would send a group of raiders to come in and, and attack and rob, Elisha would know what the king was saying and where the attack was going to be, and he would always tell the king of Israel, hey, there's going to be an attack in that city. Go to Bellflower right now. Go to Somerset and, um, and Woodruff because there's going to be an attack right there. And then he'd be like, oh, next week there's an attack there in Compton, so go over there. And, and, and like, just wherever the attacks were, he would know where they were. And so the king was saying, do we have a spy in our land, in our group? Who's, who's telling the king of Israel where we're going? And they say, there's no spy here. They got a prophet. They got a man of God who knows everything you're saying, even when you're in your own bedroom. He knows everything you're saying, and he's telling the king of Israel what to do. So the king of Aram says, all right, let's kill him then. Where is he? And they found out where he was, and so the king sent his armies to a single man's house to kill that man. And so Elisha is in his house, and his servant, there's no restrooms inside, probably, so he goes outside to the restroom, right? In the morning, wakes up, goes outside, clears the eye boogers from his eyes, looks up, still trying to get his vision straight, and he looks around, and what does he see all around him? army, military everywhere, bows strung, arrows loaded and ready to, to be fired, ready to burn down this man's house. So he gets mad, or he gets scared, I mean, and he goes back in and he says, Master, what are we to do? There's a real, is this a real danger? Is this reasonable that there's danger here? That's reasonable, right? You got an army outside your house here to kill you. That's reasonable danger. So he says, Master, what are we to do? And Elisha replies, quick, to the mountains. Let's flee like a bird. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say that. That's what the advisors counsel. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, quick, call 911. He doesn't say, call the armies of Israel. Go send a messenger to the king to bring his army here to protect us. No, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't look to an earthly security. Ultimately, he says to his servant, don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. And then he asks God to open his servant's eyes. And the servant, open, God opens the servant's eyes and he looks around and what does he see? He sees uh, the mountains covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now Elisha had seen chariots of fire before because he saw Elijah, uh, his master, go up in a chariot of fire. So he saw this miraculous thing. So Elijah, Elisha could already see it. His servant could see it. And now when you have an army of the angels of God against the, the armies of men, who's going to win? The angels, right? And so should Elisha be scared? Should he be afraid? No. Now, if you can't see the armies of God, is it reasonable to be afraid? Yeah, I mean, if there's a real danger, right? And that's the point of Psalm 11. The advisors and David's friends are saying, you need to be scared to run to the mountains because you need security. And David's saying, my security is the Lord. Open their eyes to see that the Lord is actually holy. The Lord is actually attentive. The Lord is actually invested. He's actually here, and he's my only real security. 
So church family, Christian member, if you're a Christian, here's God, what God's telling you. Keep your eyes fixed on God in heaven. Stop looking for your security ultimately in things on the earth. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this to 18. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though the outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolute, absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus. Here's the application. So we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I need to say a, a counter application right now. Don't ultra-spiritualize this psalm. David is not putting his hope in the mountains, but in the Lord. But does David flee to the mountains sometimes? Yeah, he did when he was running from Saul, right? And did David run from Absalom when Absalom had a whole army of, of Israel come into Jerusalem? Did David not flee? He did flee, right? David fled to the mountains when he was running from, from Absalom. So here's what I'm saying. Use God's tools like the mountains or like armies, for your ultimate refuge. But who's your, who should be your ultimate refuge? God, right? So use your church. Should you go to your church when you're in trouble? Sure. Should you go to family when you're in trouble? Sure. Should you have insurance? Should you have medical insurance? Yes, get medical insurance. Yes, you should have those things. Should you, go to, should you have friends to turn to? Should you have pastors to turn to? Should you have books to read or mountains to hide in? Yes, yes, have those things. But keep God as your central and ultimate security. That's the point. If you find your, your security ultimately in those things, you will be disappointed. And you will be disillusioned. And you will be ultimately depressed and in despair. Church family, let's keep teaching each other to look to the invisible. Let's keep teaching each other to look to the framework. To remember that God has to be in our calculations of our counsel to one another. Children, I know there are only a few children here, but children, listen up. There are real dangers out there. And part of what happens when you guys grow up, I don't know, kids, if you guys asked your parents this, but I think all my kids have said this now at the age, ages that they are. Um, kids get to the point where they say, Mom, Dad, I'm scared of dying, or I don't want you to die. That's a real fear, right? That's a real fear. Kids, there are real dangers out there. And I, as a parent, don't ever tell my kids, oh, no, we won't die. I'm like, yeah, that's real. I don't know what's going to happen. But we have God. As you grow up, part of your fears is, is a fear of death. Use your parents and use your church to learn more about God and go to God. And parents, go to God with your children. And teach them that you cannot be their ultimate security. Teach them that you won't always be here. And you might not even be here tomorrow. You don't know that. So teach your children to go to God. And children, I encourage you to go to God and ask your parents the hard questions that you're thinking. Tell your parents what you're scared of. And tell them to help you, to pray for you and pray with you. The good news is that God is holy and powerful and he is not for you, or he is not against you, sorry. He is not against you, he's for you. He is your safest space. He is your greatest refuge. So rest safely in Christ so that you face your dangers confidently. So you need to sense the danger, reasonably feel the danger. Number two, test the framework by faith in who God is. And lastly, number three, if you're taking notes, righteously pray for judgment. Righteously pray for judgment, verses six and seven. And this is not a surprise to you. We've been going through the Psalms and we had a whole sermon on praying for judgment in Psalm seven, I believe. 
But here in verse 6, David prays for judgment, and we're to pray for judgment too. Notice what David prays for in verse 6. Here's his prayer request. Because the wicked, because God hates the wicked and those who love violence, what's his prayer request? God, let, let God, or his prayer is God, rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion of their cup. So David now prays for judgment. He prays for burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Fire and brimstone. Brimstone. Is it brimstone or brimstone? I don't even know how to say it. Sulfur. It's sulfur is what it is. But you know the fire, those old, like the old preachers who would just always preach on the fact that hell is real and hot and burning. You can almost smell the ashes and, and, and hear the crackling of the fire in those sermons. It comes from images like this. Prayers like this. God, rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Burn them up. And this is a clear allusion to Genesis 19. Where did God burn a whole city to the ground with burning coals and sulfur? Sodom and Gomorrah. And so here David is praying. David knows that story. God, you burned that city and you burned everyone in it. Burn the wicked down. Burn them. Judge them. They have arrows that threaten David and his people. But you know what? David is not scared of their arrows because God has arrows of his own. Remember from Psalm 7, 12 and 13? Look at Psalm 7, 12 and 13 or just listen to them. Listen to it just one page back in your, note, in your Bible. If anyone does not repent, he will sharp, God will sharpen his sword. God has strung his bow and made it ready. God has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with what? With fire. So here are these people hiding in shadows, ready to kill David and the upright in heart. And what does God have? Fiery arrows. And here's what David's saying. I'm not scared of their arrows. They should be scared of God's arrows. God, rain burning coals and sulfur on them. Judge them. And then he says in verse 6, let scorching wind be the portion of their cup. Scorching wind. What is scorching wind? We don't know of scorching wind here, but... Um, we have recently started a little uh, garden bed in our backyard, and so we, we went and bought a few different plants um, to grow things in the back. Now, scorching wind in the Middle East, from spring to summer and summer to fall, there would be times where there'd be a scorching wind, and when the scorching wind would pass through the Middle East, it would be so devastating that vegetation literally would change overnight, one night, from green to brown, to parched and withered plants with one scorching wind. And so what David is praying for is like, yeah, they look alive right now, they look healthy, but God, let them have a cup of scorching wind. Let the cup that they're supposed to drink at the feast, because when you have a feast, you have, everyone's get their table, it's all set, and everyone has a cup, and everyone have a, has a drink poured, and that drink in your cup was your portion of your drink for the whole feast. So God, give them a cup and make their cup filled with the scorching wind. So burn them up with fire, and, with fire, burning coals and sulfur, and cause a scorching wind to be their, their, their portion in their cup. Cause them to be desolate, to be parched, and like withered plants. This is the judgment that, that David is praying for. And this is the judgment spoken of in Revelation 20. You should know Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. I mention it often because it's the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. Verse 13, each person, 
This is going to be you and everyone in this world. Each one was judged according to their works. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The burning coals and the sulfur and the fiery arrows and the cup of scorching wind, all of that is symbolic of the final, eternal, conscious punishment under the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. That's the final judgment, and it never ends. And David prays that the wicked and those who would not repent, those who would never come to God, ultimately that they would be judged. That's the prayer. Now, when I said David prays for a scorching wind to be their cup, the cup, I said, is the cup of judgment, the cup of fury, and the cup of desolation. And you know about another cup, don't you? The cup that Jesus prayed about in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was sweating drops of blood and praying, and he says, God, the night before he's about to die on the cross, and he says, Father, if there is another way, let this cup be what? Passed from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus knew what the cup of scorching wind was about. He knew what the cup of fury was about, the cup of desolation, the cup of destruction, the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus prayed that God would let it pass from him. But here's the good news for sinners like you and me. Here's the good news for wicked people like you and me. Here's the good news for unrighteous and disobedient people like you and me. Here's the good news for compromisers like you and me. Though we have compromised with God, though we have sinned against God and God is holy in his holy temple, and though he will judge us according to our works, which means we all deserve the second death, we all deserve to go to hell, we all deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath, Christ, God the Father, did not let the cup be passed from Jesus. He made Jesus drink the cup of scorching wind. He made Jesus drink the cup of wrath. He made Jesus drink the cup of fury for your sins so that you would never drink the cup of God's wrath. You would only drink the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood when we take communion. You would only drink the cup of forgiveness, the cup of salvation, the cup of being in the new covenant community as the people of God because Christ drank the cup of wrath to the very last drop for your sins and for my sins. So if you're not a Christian, this is the good news. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. He died for sinners like you. And God is calling you to repent from your sins and to repent from your own righteousness and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. If you'll repent from your sins and trust in Jesus and call on the Lord to save you, you will be saved. God will forgive you of your sins and change you and begin to change you for the rest of your life into all eternity. And so we invite you to trust in Jesus and repent. So you pray for judgment here. We pray for judgment. Brothers and sisters, we don't only pray for salvation. We pray for the salvation of people. But if they will not repent from their sins, we also pray for final judgment. Why? Why should we pray for final judgment in this way? And why does God hate the wicked and judge the wicked in this way with the lake of fire? Verse 7. Why? For the Lord is what? For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. That's why he hates the wicked. Because he loves righteous deeds the upright will see his face. Three things here. The Lord is righteous. What is righteousness? Righteousness is what God is. God doesn't conform to a standard of righteous. God is righteous by definition. Righteousness for God is God upholding his glory and his value and never compromising it. That is the righteousness of God. That God is ultimately consistent and uncompromising in upholding his glory. 
which is why if anyone steps on his glory or steps on his people who are the images of his glory, God will righteously respond with judgment. Just judgment, because God is righteous. Now it says not only is God righteous, he loves what? What does God love in verse seven? Righteous deeds. What are righteous deeds? Righteousness is not just your own personal obedience, your own personal faith in God. It is that. It begins with your own righteous deeds that you do by yourself. But if you're going to be righteous, it's the same word in the Bible for justice. When we think of justice, we think about righteousness beyond yourself, right? We think about interpersonal righteousness. When we think about righteousness, we think about our own personal activity. The Bible does not distinguish between societal righteousness and personal righteousness. I mean, it doesn't have a different word for that. There are two layers, and you need both. You need to be personally righteous, but you also need to care about righteousness in society, corporately, interpersonally. It's righteousness that cares for others as well. So let me read to you from Tim Keller's devotional on Proverbs. He says this, The Hebrew words for righteous, tzedek and mishpat, have a strongly social aspect. So Bruce Waltke, who's an Old Testament scholar, he writes this, quote, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, particularly the community that's held under unrighteousness and injustice. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. You notice the difference? When you're righteous, you care about those who are unrighteously being disadvantaged. And the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to cause those who are disadvantaged to, to, to get some of that advantage. The righteous say, I'll continue Tim Keller's quote. The righteous say, much of what I belong, what, much of what I have belongs to the people around me because it all comes from God and he wants me to love my neighbor. The wicked say, I can do what I want with my things. Go through Proverbs, reading righteous and wicked, Tim Keller says, now with this fuller definition in mind and it will become like a whole new book. It will move you toward living a truly righteous and just life. Not being not merely personally moral, but also committed to social justice. It will also point you to the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Societal righteousness, not social gospel. We preach Christ crucified, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Apart from that, personally, you cannot be saved. That is the gospel. But we do preach that righteousness is doing right, not only for yourself, but for your neighbors and for those around you. We have to care for that without jettisoning the gospel as central. Look at verse seven, last part. So the Lord is righteous, the Lord loves righteous deeds. And the last phrase here, the upright will what? The upright will see his face. You reveal to me the path of life. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. One Presbyterian journal tells a story about William Dyke, a Britisher who was blinded earlier in the earlier years of his life by an accident. William Dyke, so he lost his vision by an accident and though he was handicapped and blind, he still continued through school, and he, he had a, a, a very enviable academic record. He also courted a beautiful girl who, in spite of his disability, still wanted to marry him, even though he was blind. Sometime before the wedding date, Dyke's case came to the attention of a skillful surgeon who suggested, hey, there might be a surgery, and you could actually get your eyes, you could get your vision back. And so... William Dyke entrusted himself to the surgeon and um, the surgery was performed successfully and the bandages were over his eyes and the bandages were not removed until his very wedding day. 
It's the first day he's going to get sight. He could, now, he could now see. And hence it happened that he saw his bride for the first time when they met in front of the church auditorium. It says sanctuary here, but I'm going to say auditorium. <laughs> what a moment of joy. The first time seeing your bride-to-be is actually on the wedding day. And yet, in one sense, it was simply, even that's the first time he's seen her, in, in one sense, it's simply the proper fulfillment of all that had gone before, writes Dale Ralph Davis. He had already held her hand. He already heard her voice. He already prized her love. But now, he sees her face. But he loved her before he ever saw her, Dale Ralph Davis writes. He loved her before he saw her. But it was a climax to the love. And that's what we have as Christians. We don't see God now. The mountains look more secure than God, right? We love God, though we haven't seen him. We trust God, though we haven't seen him. But the upright will see his face. And so David prays and trusts God in light of that. So brothers and sisters, let's look forward to the second coming of Christ. Pray for judgment from a righteous God-centered heart, not a self-centered vindictive heart. Pray for judgment, pray for salvation of those around you. Pray for Christ to come again. Pray for the salvation and judgment of others because that helps you to keep your heart and mind on eternity. Pray for justice now. Pray for families hurting now. Pray for neighbors hurting now. Pray for our neighbors now. But don't pray only for now. Pray for salvation, eternal salvation, and pray for final judgment on those who will never be saved. That will keep you from losing sight on the gospel and the Great Commission. Children, Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you. If you're discouraged and fearful, here's the good news. God is righteous. He always does what's right, even when it looks like he's not acting. God will always uphold his glory, the glory of his mercy on his people. If God declare you righteous, he will show you his face soon, very soon. So rest safely in Christ so that you face your dangers confidently. So to summarize... How do we face our dangers with confidence in Christ? We need to feel the danger, we need to test the framework, and we need to um, pray for judgment to keep our eyes on eternity. Now, we don't always reject the counsel of our friends, our well-intentioned, unbelieving, or doubting friends, right? We don't always embrace the framework by trusting God's word about who he is and what he does. We're not always discerning that. And we don't always pray righteously for judgment as we ought to. At the, at the end of the day, we don't rest securely in God, and that's why we live with worry and fear and doubt. But there's someone who did pray that way. There's someone who did trust God. There's someone who, who rejected the well-intentioned counsel of Peter who said, you're not going to go to the cross over my dead body. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He trusted God every moment of his life. Even when he had to drink the cup of wrath, he still trusted God. He prayed for salvation of others, and he pronounced judgment in righteousness. And yet, instead of seeing God's face, when he hung on the cross, he was not seeing God's face. God turned his face away. He hung in judgment, abandoned by God, and God poured out the fury of his wrath on Jesus on the cross for our sins so that you can now trust God and not trust in mountains so that you now can discern the advice of your friends and see through that and test their framework and trust in God, so that you now can rest safely in God as you pray for the final judgment to come. So here's my final closing application to you guys. Name your biggest threat and danger in your life. 
What are you most scared to lose? We all have things we love that we're scared to lose. Name it right now. Put it in your mind. Name that thing you're scared to lose. And now in light of that fear, imagine losing that thing that you love most right now that you still have. I want you to look at God sitting in his holy temple, reigning, ruling, paying attention, and coming soon to bring judgment and restoration to all that you fear losing. Rest in God. If you fail to rest in God and see God in the face of danger, you're going to doubt him more. You're going to run to earthly mountains and you're going to be disappointed in the end. But if you stare at God and remember God in light of your fears, you will face danger confidently, you'll trust in God, and you'll encourage those around you to live with heavenly hope. You don't have to be afraid or disappointed because the Lord is your safe space. Let's pray. Father, hide these words in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you. Be our safe space. Help us to rest in you and trust in you. Help us to see through the partial truths we're given by our loved ones. Help us to feel our, your, the danger, but help us to ultimately rest in the fact that you're holy, you're attentive, and you're invested. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.